Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 70. I never remember what episode number it is. I think it's uh, 78. Pretty, I should start remembering. Anyway, uh, pretty sure it's episode 78. <laughs> so uh, we're not a very new podcast anymore, but uh, for those of you just uh, tuning in for the first time, uh, basically what we do here on the podcast is uh, I invite an author on to talk about a book of theirs that's been newly published, uh, something we think you guys out there would like to uh, uh, hear a discussion about, and then hopefully at the end of the podcast or you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, uh, you go out and purchase the book for yourself and uh, give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And uh, my guest today is Dr. Peter Richardson, and uh, Dr. Richardson is a lecturer at San Francisco State University teaching courses on California culture. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, The New Republic, the San Francisco Chronicle, Literary Hub, Mother Jones, the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Los Angeles Times Book Review, and Book Forum, among others. He is the author of, <clears throat> excuse me, A Bomb in Every Issue, How the Short, Unruly Life of Ramparts Magazine Changed America, American Prophet, The Life and Work of Kerry McWilliams, and No Simple Highway, A Cultural History of the Grateful Dead, which is a great book uh, for you deadheads out there. And uh, lastly, he is the author of Savage Journey, Hunter S. Thompson, and The Weird Road to Gonzo, uh, which was published back in January by the University of California Press, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Richardson, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, no problem. So, um, what what made you want to write this book on, uh, I know you, uh, like I said, you your interest is in, you know, all things California. Um, what made you want to write this book? What what was the genesis of it? Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in Hunter Thompson, um, like a lot of people. But mm-hmm. I think the thing that led directly to this project was he had appeared in my previous three books as a kind of secondary figure. He he was edited by Carrie McWilliams at the Nation magazine. My my first book was uh, American Prophet was about Carrie McWilliams, so. He was sort of a a minor figure in that, but it sent me back to his correspondence. And I I read that and I've always been fascinated by Hunter Thompson's correspondence. Mm. And then the the, uh, Ramparts Magazine project, by the way, I didn't even know who Carrie McWilliams, I didn't know what Ramparts Magazine was until I was in my (laughs) forties. And so both of those books came out of uh, just the curiosity of why haven't I heard about Carrie McWilliams and Ramparts Magazine? And then in the course of uh, working on the, on the Ramparts book, uh, I learned a lot about Warren Hinkle. Warren Hinkle was also one of uh, Hunter Thompson's editors um, at Scanlon's magazine before Thompson made the shift to Rolling Stone. And then in my most recent book, which you mentioned, No Simple Highway, about the Grateful Dead, Hunter Thompson was a big Grateful Dead fan. And of course, he was edited by uh, Jan Wenner at Rolling Stone, and, and the, the story of the Grateful Dead intersected with the story of Rolling Stone magazine. And, and all, most of these things, not Carrie McWilliams, but certainly Ramparts magazine and the Grateful Dead and Hunter Thompson sort of grew out of the same cultural soil, you know, this mid-century um, San Francisco Bay Area situation where... where um, you know, including the counterculture. Mm-hmm. So the last three books have really been about 
you know, the San Francisco counterculture of the 60s and 70s. And in every one of them, I went back and, and looked at Thompson and his correspondence. I finally realized I had a great running start on Hunter Thompson. Moreover, every time I went and looked at Thompson's correspondence, you know, when writing about Ramparts or The Grateful Dead or Carrie McWilliams, I had to kind of tear myself back to the project at hand because I found Thompson <laughs> as a figure so interesting. So I figured all of those were good signs that maybe the next project should be about should be about Hunter Thompson. Yeah, his letters um, are great. I I don't know. I'm I I love reading uh, editions of of letters from famous people. Um, I just spent like eighty dollars <laughs> on two books uh, uh, on the the letter. Or, or, actually, they weren't even letters. It was a diary. But never mind. Um, but yeah, his uh, his two volumes of letters. There, that was actually the the first volume. Um, I think it's the Proud Highway. I think is the the first one. Um, that was right. I was working in. Uh, I I worked at a Barnes and Noble in high school when I was a kid, and um, the, high school was of course probably where me and uh, many other people first became friends or uh, fans of Hunter Thompson. You know, you <laughs> sort of. Uh, a lot of, I feel like male writers, um, you know, since <laughs> since the 70s have, have sort of gone through the, or young male writers have gone through some sort of uh, Hunter Thompson phase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I yeah. think that's true. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, I think the letters were actually like the, um, maybe like the second thing I had read of his because I just, uh, I think they were published. Or maybe the paperback was just coming out right when I started working there. And we got we got a forty percent discount on books, mm-hmm. and uh, so I used it to you know buy buy the book, um, and it was really fascinating. And uh, and then there was this guy I worked with, who, um, I mean, because I would be reading the book uh, at work, sort of, <laughs> you know, behind the counter, just uh, flipping through a couple pages, something. And this guy I worked with, an older guy, said that he actually knew uh, Hunter. Thompson, uh, uh, not well, but like knew it was in Aspen or something, uh, which was probably mm. bullshit, uh, because he told me the story, um, the one that's in your book about him golfing with George Plimpton and uh, pulling out a right. shotgun and <laughs> using it on the golf course. And this guy told me the same story, uh, minus George Plimpton, but that he was there and that uh, Hunter Thompson uh, pulled out a shotgun and, and uh, blew his ball apart. And, uh, so, uh. but, uh, so, um, I, I, I highly doubt, like I said, now looking back on it, it was probably, uh, uh, you know, obviously not true that he was there he was just trying to look cool, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cause he didn't mention George. Well, you Clinton know, that book, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And that was about the time when, um, the book, that book of the book of the two volumes of correspondence mm-hmm. came out. Um, beginning in the late 90s. I think one was 1997 or 8, and the other one was the year 2000. And, you know, by that time, Thompson's work had really declined in in quality and quantity. And and those two books of correspondence edited by Douglas Brinkley really helped put him back in focus and a kind of sharp, vivid focus for a lot of people um, who had stopped thinking about Hunter Thompson a while back. I mean, he he was sort of coasting on his on his previous success, the books kind of were declining in, in quality. They weren't getting the kinds of um, yeah. enthusiastic or wide reviews that they were getting before. 
So both that the the movie version, yeah, the Terry Gilliam movie was Vegas, out, like ninety eight or ninety seven, right, like yeah. right, right about the time that the that the two books of correspondence came out, and they really appealed to different audiences, and they were both, I think, very effective. I mean, the movie really recruited a bunch of new fans, most of whom probably didn't read books. You know, they were attracted <laughs> to the persona, they were attracted to Johnny Depp's performance. Yeah. And just the wild kind of audacity and, and insanity of uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you mm. know, which is his gonzo masterpiece. Yeah. So, you know, around that time, he recruited, as as one of his biographers, William McKean, said, he, he, he was the favorite author of a lot of people who didn't read books. <laughs> and but I think the on the other hand, at the same time, you had these you had these two volumes of correspondence that really showed him as a kind of very skillful and connected literary networker, mm. you know, especially the, the, the letters only go up to 1975. You don't get it. There was a third volume, of course, that was planned, had a cover, had a title, had an ISBN number, never came out. Why? So there was some, somebody put the kibosh on that. Why? Yeah. Do we know why that never came out? I've never heard anything authoritative. Um, you can still order that book, I think. It's still on Amazon. <laughs> you know, and it's yeah. been about on there for about 15 years. And presumably, you know, it's going to come out someday. Someone is ho- probably holding that up. Mm. You know, perhaps a family member or somebody like that is still alive. But it's it's not clear to me who. And I would I would rather not, you know, yeah, speculate. Yeah. But but I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see the letters after 1975 because sure. the, the ones, you know, going back to the 50s, of course, he, he had been writing and saving his letters back to his early teens. And, you know, he was he, he kept all that stuff. They're still in his archive. Mm-hmm. The archive is privately owned by a consortium. Johnny Depp is part of that as well. But they're not available to researchers. So all we, all we really have are these published letters but it's an incredibly rich source if you're trying to figure out, yeah. you know, uh, Thompson's literary formation and development and who his influences were and, and sort of how he got his career off the ground. Yeah. You mentioned uh, William Keen. He was actually uh, I took a course with him at the University of Florida when I was there. Uh, he was in the wow. journalism department. and I was a history major. So we, but he was t- taking um, teaching some course on like the history of rock and roll or something like that. And yes, uh, yes. And I took that and actually let him borrow a uh, box set on uh, girl group music. Uh, huh. that, came out, <laughs> that came out. Of, I it hope came you in got a, it back. Yeah. No, I, I got it back. I, I made sure I got it back. But um, uh, but so that's my other Hunter Thompson connection. But uh, yeah, uh, well, that's a good one because Bill has been a as you know he wrote two books. One was a short biography in the Twain series yeah. that came out in the early '90s, and then he wrote the longer one, Outlaw Journalist, which I found you know really useful. I, I never really considered my book a uh, a biography in the same sense that yeah. that Bill's is. Um, my I had a very specific interest in his literary formation and literary development, and I think that mm. you know when you write a book about Hunter Thompson now, you have to be you have to be very clear about what your contribution is sure. because there's already a lot of good books out there. Same with the Grateful Dead, actually. So the, the the thing you need to do very early on is be able to articulate what what you're doing that that the other books aren't doing, yeah. and uh, which means you know you're always kind of you're always kind of depending on and building on the work that went before, and and Bill's work is is certainly part of that. Yeah, that was the only 
the only course I got to take with him because, like I said, he was in the journalism department. I was a history major, so um, it just didn't line up. But um, yeah, you mentioned that the, the archives, uh, Hunter Thompson's archives, are inaccessible. Um, um, so how did that make it uh, difficult? Uh, to write the book was I mean what was your process for writing the book how how long did it take you yeah. to take it took some years right I mean I, I had already been re-reading and rereading a, a lot of that material you know partly because I teach it uh, teach courses on Bay Area culture and, mm. and focus on the counterculture and whatnot so but there was also an archive one of you know Thompson's a major bibliographer Eric Schoff had donated his collection and papers to the University of California, Santa Cruz. And so right before COVID hit and all these archives shut down, I was able to get down to UC Santa Cruz and go through some of these earlier magazine articles, especially that, that Thompson had done and see them in their original form. And um, so I was able to get to, to some of that archival stuff. Of course, you know, I was able to talk to his editors over the telephone one thing about COVID is um, at least people were by the phone. You know? <laughs> if they were, if they were alive, you could probably, there, there, there was the nothing else to do, you know? So. Right. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I really wanted to talk to his editors. Yeah. I, I think he really benefited from some very, very skilled editors. And I've already mentioned a few, Carrie McWilliams, Warren Hinkle, uh, certainly Jan Wenner mm-hmm. and others, um, Alan Rinsler, and Marianne Rucci, uh, Mary Sue Rucci, sorry. And um, and so I really wanted to think about him more as a writer. I mean, certainly his persona has become kind of a dominant image of him in the, in the public imagination. Yeah, overshadowing I mean, that, that began his really in the, work in a yeah, lot of ways, you know. The caricature. It did, it is, did, yeah. I think. I think it did. Yeah. You know, I agree with you. That, that it became almost, and in some senses, he became a kind of cartoon. Yeah. And literally a cartoon in the sense that Gary Trudeau's Doonesbury, which won a Pulitzer Prize right around the time that he invented the character of Uncle Duke, which was obviously based on on Hunter Thompson. You know, that that of course, Thompson hated that he hated he hated being um, depicted in a in a cartoon, even a really good one like like Doonesbury. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it really kept him in the public eye and helped make him a kind of cultural icon. I mean, that, that was already the case based on the strength of his work in Rolling Stone magazine and Scanlon's magazine. And yeah. He was already very much in the public eye. Yeah, no, once, I, I, I can say I can just remember being, you know, like I said, in my early 20s and stuff and people going to Halloween parties as, you know, dressed up as, as you know, basically Raoul Duke, uh, you know, with right, the, the fishing right. hat and the, the cigarette holder and the, the, you know, the glasses and all that. And, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> none of those people that I ever, um, uh, saw or talked to <laughs> in those costumes had ever actually read a word <laughs> of, you know, Hunter Thompson. Right. They had just seen the movie right. and were just like, oh, you know, drugs, booze, you know, this is guns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I um, mean that, and, and, you know, what Douglas Brinkley would say is that was his greatest creation. You sure. know, that persona. I mean, there was a body of work, of course, but in many ways, as you say, the um, 
I mean, it's a uniquely American character. The work was overshadowed. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 And any, any, he, he would tell you that his main topic for 20 or 30 years was what he called the American dream, mm-hmm. his version of the American dream and the death of that dream um, was the kind of theme that tied, tied his best work together. I mean, you know, there's a whole thing in the book and in, in my book about what he meant by the American dream, what he had in mind. It wasn't, it wasn't identical to what uh, many people think of, but he certainly held it very closely and used it as a kind of, um, you know, way into most of his topics. But it really was this development of gonzo journalism in 1970 that mm-hmm. became his calling card. Yeah. Um, let me see. You write in the book that, uh, uh, quote, I would argue that Thompson was not only an accomplished journalist, satirist, and media critic, but also the most distinctive American voice in the second half of the 20th century. You know, I'm assuming when you say most distinctive American voice, you're meaning literary voice. Um, so, right. Yeah. So yeah. why is that? Make uh, make the case for Hunter Thompson as the as the uh, most distinctive American. Well, person. you always knew you were reading something by Hunter Thompson. I yeah. mean, you, you weren't, you didn't think, I wonder if this is by Tom Wolfe or Joan Diddy. <laughs> no, I mean, if, if somebody just handed you something and didn't tell you who wrote it, you knew who, you knew who it was. And, you know, a lot of that had to do with the, with his style. It was a very, very specific style um, that nobody else could really replicate. A lot of people were tr- tried or were influenced by that. And you could argue that he was imitating himself toward the end of his career. But it was a very, very difficult, uh, as, as tempting as it was, you know, it wasn't the kind of style that could easily be, be um, duplicated. I mean, it just, it just belonged to him. In fact, the whole notion that of gonzo journalism as a genre is really kind of a misnomer because it really, oh, he's really the only practitioner, authentic yeah, practitioner. Yeah, it's sui generis. It. it sort of begins and ends with him. It does. And I mean, I'm not even sure that journalism is the right thing to call <laughs> it. I mean, certainly um, in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is still classified as nonfiction, um, you know, why is that nonfiction? I mean, the two major characters are fictional, you know, it's mm-hmm. Raoul Duke who's clearly based on Thompson, but is not Hunter Thompson. And Dr. Gonzo, who's clearly based on uh, Oscar Acosta, but is certainly not Oscar Acosta. That became a a whole sort of kerfuffle itself between Thompson and Acosta. But, um, and, and we now know that, that the events described in the book are, were, were mostly fictional, including the big, cache of drugs in the, yeah. in the trunk of the car, the, the great red shark. So it was kind of I, I really think it, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, I think it makes a little bit more sense to think of it as a, as a novel and some, one of his best friends, William Kennedy, who he met um, when, when Kennedy was a journalist down in Puerto Rico uh, would say, no, he was always writing fiction mm-hmm. I mean, that he was building up his fictional, you know, oeuvre, uh, Meanwhile, it, it was always kind of systematically mistaken for journalism. And, and I think I think that that's important to recognize. I mean, whether or not you, you go along with the argument or the claim, um, you have to understand that that he wasn't just importing the techniques of fiction into his journalism, but that some of it was fantastical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
why uh why was Thompson's formation as a writer uh in your opinion largely a, a California story and more specifically a San Francisco story or a Bay Area story how was right. how was San Francisco critical to to Thompson's literary formation yeah, that's one of my big claims. I mean, maybe maybe people think it's obvious, but it doesn't really come out strongly in the in the um, in most of the biographies. And so I wanted to make sure that I that I emphasized it. So there's a kind of slow walk in the in the years when he arrives in in uh, the Bay Area, Northern California, and then um, continues to work with editors that are based in San Francisco, mm-hmm. like Warren Hinkle and and Jan Wenner. But basically, the idea is that he was drawn to the Bay Area. He was he was fascinated by by the Beats and especially Jack Kerouac. He did not admire Kerouac's prose, but he admired what Kerouac was able to do, um, what he was able to write about, the freedom with which he was he could write about it, the autobiographical part of it, the way he was able to convert um, events from his life into fiction and then sell it. To major publishers and sell books and create a kind of media furor around around his work. Uh, Thompson really admired that. So he comes to to San Francisco, visits all the beach shrines, uh, tries to get a job with the two major papers, the San Francisco Examiner, which was owned by the Hearst family, and then and the San Francisco Chronicle fails. Uh, moves down to Big Sur, which is kind of an odd thing to do if you're a journalist because it's a pretty remote outpost, um, you know, quite a bit south of, of San Francisco in the Bay Area. Uh, but it's not such a weird thing to do if you, it's, if you think of yourself as a novelist in training, which is which is how Thompson thought about himself, because there were novelists down there. One of them was Dennis Murphy, who wrote a book called The Sergeant. His brother was Michael Murphy, who ends up co-founding the Esalon Institute, which is a big kind of node in the in the human potential movement, still still around, more popular than ever. And there was also Henry Miller down there, and and Miller was a kind of godfather to the counterculture and mm-hmm. such sexual revolution. A lot of things that played out in the 1960s. Certainly, Kerouac owed a debt to Henry Miller as well. Um, Thompson never met Henry Miller while he was in Big Sur, though he tried. Um, but I, I think you can make the case, and I try to make the case in the book, that in, in many ways, of all the influences that Thompson absorbed, and, and there were many, right? There were, mm-hmm. you know, you've got Joseph Conrad and Ernest Hemingway and, and F. Scott Fitzgerald, and many of those influences are well known. But I, I really think that that Henry Miller was the person who kind of provided the template, the model of authorship, if you will, that Thompson was really attracted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a kind of transgressive quality to Miller's work. And also he sort of posted up in this kind of beautiful bucolic place. You know, he never, you know, he didn't work in New York City or, you know, Chicago or or uh, Los Angeles or, or something like that, though he eventually did move to Los Angeles. But the idea of, of this person kind of working in splendid isolation and with complete freedom, you know, it had there was a kind of bohemian dream 
<laughs> yeah. that that Miller embodied that I think Thompson was really powerfully attracted to. And when you look at the decisions that he makes later, you know, you see that he, he doesn't, you know, he, go, he goes to the Rocky Mountains. He goes to these beautiful places. He goes to Glen Allen in Sonoma County. And, you know, so I think, I think, you know, the kind of career he had in mind was the one that he saw uh, for, with Henry Miller. Then, of course, he, he moves back to the Bay Area and he starts covering the Hells Angels and he starts covering the free speech movement at the University of California, Berkeley. He begins participating enthusiastically in the drug culture in and around San Francisco. He meets Ken Kesey. Um, you know, he meets Warren Hinkle and, and the Ramparts magazine crowd, later writes for Hinkle when Hinkle uh, found Scanlon's magazine, mm. produces the first work of Gonzo journalism. So there's, there's just, and, and then later in life, if, if there were any doubt about it, later in life, Thompson said, that was my peak era, that those years in San Francisco were really what it was all about for me. And even though he, he lived in, in Woody Creek, Colorado, for the last 40 years of his life, 50 years, um, it really was all about San Francisco. If you're, if you're talking about his literary formation, yeah. the kinds of things that created him and shaped him as a writer, I think, I think it was largely a, a San Francisco story. Yeah, I'm, I was actually surprised he never met Miller. Do you know if he ever just like went and knocked on his door? Like I think of... Uh you know, like Walker Percy and Shelby Foote doing that with Faulkner or, uh, yeah. or Walker Percy yeah. doing it, but Shelby Foote being like too scared and just like sitting in the car the entire time, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, uh, yeah. did he, I mean, cause he, Thompson's such a brash uh, sort of ballsy guy. Oh yeah, guy. he would have done it. He would have yeah. done it. In fact, he staked out his mailbox, <laughs> you know, uh, t- Miller lived in, back in one of those, on one of those ridges. And mm. um, so his, his mailbox was down, I think on, uh, close to the main road, Highway One, and uh, Thompson tried that, but but the problem was that that Miller was traveling a lot during mm. that time, and he wasn't in Big Sur very much, and so their paths never crossed. Gotcha. And finally, of course, as you know, I mean, uh, Thompson got got booted out of town, <laughs> <laughs> run out of town. Yeah. Uh, he had he had been serving as the caretaker at Slate's Hot Springs, which later became the Esalen Institute. Mm. And uh, kind of got crosswise with the owner and also wrote uh, about Big Sur, wrote his first uh, article for a national magazine about Big Sur, where he, he writes about Henry Miller and the, the whole scene in Big Sur. And the owner of the property, who was Michael Murphy's grandmother, came in from Salinas in a chauffeured Cadillac and just said, you know, get your stuff and get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Don't like the article. Don't like what you've been doing around here. This is when you he's know. like starting to get in really into, into the gun stuff. <laughs> yeah. He met a guy there. He met uh, a sculptor actually in, and, and an old, you know, a member of an old ranching family down there who, who got him into guns mm-hmm. Yeah, during that time. I'm sure he had some guns in Kentucky. Sure. growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, but, but that's when he really becomes a kind of ardent, um, gun fetishist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> although enthusiast. the fetish really didn't blossom. Yeah. Enthusiast yeah. until he gets, until he gets to Colorado, but yeah. no, he has his guns. He has his pistols and shotguns and stuff. Even then they're hunting deer. 
um, up in the up in the um, the coastal range of the Pacific Coast mountains there. Mm. And you know, he's living he's living that kind of rugged life that that he wanted to live with plenty of space and he needed room and uh he had it in Big Sur. But but shortly after he submits the manuscript for uh Hell's Angels, his first book and a bestseller, he moves to to uh Woody Creek, Colorado. That's what the fall of nineteen sixty six. And uh, he never, he never, I mean, he, he returns to San Francisco and the Bay area a lot after that. And he ends up writing, you know, 175 columns for the San Francisco examiner um, during the 1980s. But he never really is a resident of the, of the Bay area after that. And of course, during that time that he was writing about the hell's angels, he was actually living in San Francisco. One of the few times that he, he lived in in New York city for a while. Yeah, very close to Haight Ashbury, um, not not too far from the University of California, San Francisco, which is this big research hospital, walking distance to Keysar Stadium, which is where the San Francisco 49ers played their home games at that time. He had to, he had seasons tickets to that, so you know he was a he was a, still a sports fan first mm-hmm. and foremost. I mean, he had been a sports writer and was always interested in football, and of course, you know, finished his career writing. Uh, for ESPN, which was partly owned by the Hearst Corporation, yeah. you know, the uh, where he had, you know, failed to get on at the at the San Francisco Examiner and wrote a lot of snarky stuff about <laughs> William Randolph Hearst. At, at the end of the day, he ended up working for Hearst's grandson, Will Hearst, at the San Francisco Examiner in the 80s. And then um, and the Hearst Corporation owned something like 25 percent of ESPN. And that's where he finished his career in the in the early 2000s. Yeah. So um, I thought maybe you could just uh, talk a little bit about or describe uh, San Francisco. Um, those years in the mid 60s, or it's sort of everything starting to come together, and it's really, really mm-hmm. uh, an interesting place. You know, like 64 to uh, 66. You know, 67 is the considered like the summer of love, but you know, everyone who was pretty much there said by 67 it was over <laughs> you know it was already it was, practically it, over oh yeah, yeah it was yeah. over and it was you know it was just getting out of hand and just but mm-hmm. uh you know the yeah. whole um you know you had uh Keezy and the pranksters up at la honda um mm-hmm. the, the the emergence of the of the that ballroom dance rock and roll ballroom scene uh the film right. and the the family dog and the carousel and all those places and um uh, I mean, you had Berkeley with uh, all the stuff going on there too. Uh, so, mm-hmm. what what is what is the Bay Area like in in the in this? Uh, and and LSD is still legal uh, in California mm-hmm. up, up until I think January of '66 or or maybe later in 1966. I can't remember, but fall. Uh, yeah, I think it was October. October '66. Yeah. 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 Um, so mm-hmm. what's what is San Francisco, the Bay Area like? What at at this time? at the middle sixties, what uh, sort of describe that for people. Right. Right. Well, I mean, it had always been a kind of, um, I mean, after the war, there had been a kind of resurgence of bohemian culture in and around San Francisco with uh, poets and, and painters. And it was a small collaborative kind of do it yourself scene. It wasn't a very commercially successful scene, but it had a, 
these kind of strong avant-garde elements. And a lot of people like Jerry Garcia from the Grateful Dead, you know, were, were drawn to that scene and, and really modeled themselves, were shaped by it. Um, so Thompson wasn't the only person who was affected by that bohemian culture, and, and which is best known for these beat authors like Kerouac and, and Allen Ginsberg. And then Kesey, sort of, who was a big fan of the beats as well, sort of advances that scene a little bit and um, and introduces LSD and gives it a kind of psychedelic flavor. And so it's, it's best, I think, to think of Kesey as a kind of um, transitional figure between the beats and the hippies. Mm. And of course, Thompson, Thompson was connected to Kesey. He, he introduced, he introduced Kesey to the Hells Angels as he was writing about his, uh, as he was writing his first book. And so, you know, there's just a lot going on and most of it was a kind of, uh, you know, various forms of youthful rebellion for sure. You know, there was the San Francisco counterculture. There was also the camp campus activism at UC Berkeley there was also the inception of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense mm. in Oakland. And all of these things were kind of challenging, you know, traditional values and traditional norms and customs. You know, there was a, I think the one, the, the kind of big thing to say about San Francisco during this time was that it, it had become known for, I mean, there were, there were nuances and complications, but it, it was, it was quite well known for becoming a place that was a, that was a haven for those seeking political, artistic, and sexual freedom, you know, and the beats and the, and the hippies and, and others sort of personify that it was, they were for maximum freedom Mm -hmm. and for new ways of living and, you know, experimental stuff. Now the media got a hold of what was going on there. And uh, especially after the human being in January, 1967 and they hated the hippies i mean you know the hippies did not get good press coverage uh once the national media got involved and began to cover them and as the summer of love came in you know started to approach in in the summer of 1967 uh you know the city began to say hey you know no don't come but of course over a hundred thousand people came young people came to San Francisco that summer. And, th- and that was really what overloaded this fledgling art and music scene. You know, that was the summer of 1967. Shortly after that, um, Jan Wenner and Ralph Gleason create Rolling Stone magazine and begin to kind of chronicle and document and champion the local music scene. And, mm-hmm. and even though San Francisco had never been much of a rock and roll town, you know, it was mostly jazz and some folk music and some blues but but never really a a serious rock and roll place Uh, by 1967 uh, i would say by 1969 san francisco had become a kind of global rock capital part of that was because kesey and stuart brand and some others put put together the trips festival in january of 1966 and that combined rock, rock music and light shows and freestyle dancing. And it really became a kind of template for the modern rock concert that we still have today. I mean, yeah, before yeah. that rock and roll show, rock and roll shows, you know, there were four guys in identical suits singing, you know, eight songs in 30 minutes and then running off stage. 
the really the modern rock concert you know once when the hippies got their hands on the on the on the rock concert they shaped it into what we still recognize today yeah so it was moving on a lot of different fronts you know there was a kind of cultural front there was a political front you know the i mean there was a lot of um on-campus activity that had to do with civil rights and um, opposition to the war in Vietnam and so on. So, there, I mean, there was a, quite quite a vital scene, but but mostly I think it had to do with uh, youthful rebellion and then sort of insisting on these uh, political, artistic, and sexual freedom. Yeah, I was going to say, probably it's even more so than the even the albums and everything that the San Francisco bands put out in the mid to late 60s, but uh, the the ballroom reinvention of the of the rock concert probably san francisco's biggest legacy you know to rock music uh, like you said before you know yeah, just, you yeah. come out and do your 30 minutes and uh you know same set uh you know same song same order that sort of thing and then uh, yeah it's you know, like a recital but, yeah like a recital yeah. and then yeah. uh you know you had the fillmore and the carousel and all these places uh the avalon um you know where bands could come and just uh they had to play like the San Francisco bands, right? Like, you know, cream would come over and, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, you'd have to, I mean, cream would just sit there and wing it for, you know, uh, and just wank around for, you know, an hour and a half, that sort of thing. And, uh, but yeah, that's really the, uh, San Francisco, maybe, uh, maybe the dead too, in a way, just sort of, uh, uh, set like a new, uh, template for everybody that like, you have to, um, <laughs> you have to really attempt to make things uh, interesting <laughs> for the audience. You can't just go out yeah, there and yeah. just do, you know, just do the same thing over and over again every single night. Right. Yeah. No. I think I think if you if you look carefully at at the Grateful Dead and their development, you can see it as a kind of outgrowth of what of what the poets and the and the, the other artists uh, that Jerry Garcia was influenced by. Yeah. And the acid uh, test. We're also too. trying to do, yeah. and the acid test, and they were they were connected to the acid test. They knew Ken Kesey from Palo Alto, and and were sort of the house band for the acid test. So those really weren't concerts. You right. Know, nobody came to acid test to see the Grateful Dead. Sometimes they didn't even play. Yeah. You know, but they were part of something, and that that became a kind of that became the sort of a model scene for what the Grateful Dead wanted to do. And just do it on a bigger scale. So one of, one of the things, the way I think about it, you know, only so many people could fit into Jack Kerouac's Ford sedan and, you know, with Neil Cassidy, but, and drive across country. Mm. But when you, when the Grateful Dead start touring, crisscrossing the country, playing 80 or a hundred, you know, shows a year, um, what they become is a kind of touring simulacrum for the San Francisco counterculture allows people to kind of step in to the San Francisco counterculture. That's this kind of standing invitation to experience the sort of thing that the dead were, were impressed by, Mm -hmm. uh, by those, by those early acid tests. And and then the the culmination of the acid test, the biggest acid test, which was the trips festival and Bill Graham, you know, the promoter was, was, was at the trips festival and he understood the potential there. And he was the person that began to sort of uh, host shows at these underused ballrooms, some of which you mentioned. 
Mm. And, um, and that really becomes a whole new way of doing rock and roll. And, and it became a more commercial uh, success as well. I mean, these bands were, were not counting on breaking out. Um, some of them got record deals pretty early, like Jefferson Airplane. The Dead got a record deal in 1967. The first couple albums weren't that great. I mean, didn't sell that well. Yeah. But, um, you know, the idea was that there was something, you know, that San Francisco music scene had some sort of secret sauce. And I think the record executives began to come and, and try to get some of that to sign up that talent. And, um, you know, all of a sudden, San Francisco was crawling with A&R guys from the major labels down in down in Los Angeles. And Thompson was there for that whole time. You know, mm-hmm. he witnessed that whole thing. I mean, he, he saw Jefferson Airplane. He had a crush on Grace Slick, you know. <laughs> he, he was telling his friends about, about the Grateful Dead. He was, you know, he was assembling all of his favorite albums yeah. of the 60s and the Grateful Dead appeared on that list as well. Even though he never really wrote about music as such for Rolling Stone, which was a rock magazine. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty weird. The number one, the number one author or writer for Rolling Stone magazine was a guy who didn't write about music. Yeah. But Rolling Stone was, was always more than a rock magazine. And that, that I think is, is an important part of Thompson's development. The fact that he landed at Rolling Stone and cause I'm not sure that he would have been as successful anywhere else. I mean, I think he needed a kind of unique publication like Rolling Stone to kind of get his game on. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he could have done it in San Francisco 10 years later or 10 years before. I think there was something about that confluence of factors that, um, yeah, you know, I mean, and Thompson was in the right place for, to take advantage of it. But, but even then, Tim, I mean, you know, there, there was nothing you know, preordained or predictable or certainly guaranteed about the fact that um, Thompson was going to land at Rolling Stone and become a big success. That was, there were a lot of <laughs> false starts and setbacks and uncertainties and, and all kinds of vagaries went into, into the creation of gonzo journalism and, and yeah. its success. Do uh, I? I can't remember. Do we know if if he attended any of the uh, acid tests? Uh, I mean, I know he was at the the uh, the party at La Honda at Keezy's with the Hell's Angels and the you know the famous that's right the famous gang yeah. gang from uh, Electric Coolidge acid test and Tom Wolfe. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, or, or was sure, he? Yeah, or yeah. was he? Uh, I know he liked the Dead. Was he? Um, did he know any of those guys personally, Garcia, any of those guys? Was he uh, friendly, um, you know, uh, with them? Do you know? You know, they must have crossed, pa- crossed paths. Sure. Um, I can't remember he, if you know, any of those guys, the, the dead guys, were at the, 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 the Honda, the Hells Angels party. No, I, I don't remember. think they were. I don't think. Allen Ginsberg was there. And, you know, Thompson went down there with his wife and, and very young son, Juan. And he saw that Keezy was giving out LSD to the Hells Angels. And, you know, Thompson had, just, had been riding with the Hells Angels for a year. I mean, the yeah. last thing that Thompson would have... Thompson had never taken LSD at that point. And the last thing he wanted to do was be around the Hells Angels after somebody dosed them. That, that was not his <laughs> idea of a good time, you know. And he was there with his family, right? So he was horrified. He left. He left the party. And... Uh, he came back later and, and 
things seem to be going better, but, but, and, and then he witnessed this gangbang, which, um, which he, which horrified him. And he went home and, and, and described it in, uh, on tape. And then, and then Tom Wolf was able to use that material and, and give Thompson credit for it. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, the thing about electric Kool-Aid acid test is that he never really talks very much about his sources. So, yeah. but, but he did acknowledge that Thompson was the one who um, gave him that, gave him that information. And it had to do with Neil Cassidy. In fact, you know, Thompson, when he wrote about it, couldn't even refer to Cassidy by name. The random house lawyer said, take that out. Don't name Neil Cassidy here. Um, you know, because of, you know, the liability really. And, you know, that's, that's a whole other aspect of, of Thompson's career is dealing with his editors at, and, and the lawyers um, at Random House. At any rate, you know, they, they pulled it all together. And, and uh, no, I don't think he was friend, friendly with, personally friendly with, with the members of the Grateful Dead. Um, don't, don't forget, he moved away. From yeah, like Francisco very early 60s. In, yeah, yeah fall of 1966 um but he, he was a fan he really liked working man's dead and a lot of people do sure you know the 1970 album that was a that marked a very different turn in their music um you know they much more you know warm and kind of folky and acoustic and songs you could play on the radio and so in warner brothers their label was very happy with that album <laughs> and then american beauty which came out the same year yeah, yeah. um what was it i'm already going like 40 minutes already um <laughs> i guess i'll try to move the conversation along uh to talk more <laughs> about his work because uh, we're again we're sort of overlooking that so uh the hell's angels book comes out uh it's a very good book he's it's a big bestseller um that's when there's the, that Hunter S. Thompson, their persona, begins to per, to appear, and then. Right. Uh, but the big breakthrough is the article he writes for Scanlon's, uh, the the Kentucky mm-hmm. Derby article. The Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved. It's, um, you know, the breakthrough where he finds his voice, and also importantly, where he teams up and meets. Ralph Steadman, the illustrator, for the first time, and right, uh, right, right. And Ralph Steadman's hugely important to uh, how people think of Thompson and Gonzo, in a way, like they're right. almost inseparable right. without the, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit like the psychedelic posters and yeah, how yeah. closely identified they are with with San Francisco music of that period. I mean, there was a kind of there was a kind of visual corollary that Stedman provided. And I, I agree. I think it was, it was absolutely indispensable to Gonzo's success. And that was the first time they worked together on the, on the Kentucky Derby piece, um, which Thompson, as you know, thought was a brutal failure. I mean, he really thought he had failed. I mean, he, he was very anxious at that time. He, as soon as, as soon as um, Hell's Angels became a bestseller, he signed contracts with the random house to do two or three more books. And three years later, he, he hadn't delivered any of them. And so uh, just a few months before the 1970 Kentucky Derby, Thompson was really didn't have, really didn't have a, a clear idea of how he's going to be able to deliver any of these book projects that he had signed up to do. Also his, 
his magazine work was flagging. He was mm-hmm. supposed to do an article for Playboy magazine. They spiked it. Um, uh, Hinkle agreed to run it in Scanlon's magazine, in the first issue of Scanlon's magazine. So he turned to Hinkle when um, when he had this idea to to write about the Kentucky Derby. That was the idea. Actually, came from um, James Salter, a novelist who lived in Aspen, who who had the Thompsons over for dinner and said, "Oh, you're from Louisville. Why don't you write? Are you going to write about the Kentucky Derby?" So so Hinkle pairs Thompson with Stedman. I mean, he he kind of he kind of helps birth Gonzo journalism by with that pairing yeah. and, and off, off they go to, uh, to Louisville to c- cover the Kentucky Derby. And of course, you know, Thompson has this huge advantage because he grew up in Louisville. I mean, if you're going to satirize a place, it really helps to be from that place. <laughs> if you know it like the back of all head, of know, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That kind of intimate knowledge of Louisville and its customs and its people and, you know, the Derby and all that. I mean, that gives him a huge advantage. Nevertheless, he really feel he really felt like he had messed up the project, messed it up so bad that it might end his career. That's what he was thinking yeah. when he turned in the Kentucky Derby piece. And of course, well, especially after it was combined with, with Stedman's illustrations, it was hailed as a breakthrough in journalism, which astonished Thompson. He said, I, I feel like I fell down an elevator shaft and into a pool full of mermaids, you know? (laughs) And it, but even then he didn't totally realize that this Gonzo thing was going to be, he wanted to work with Stedman again, but, but Scanlon's tanked after eight issues. So he had to start all over again. And that, that's about the time that he started corresponding with Jan Wenner at Rolling Stone. And he started contributing pieces to, to Rolling Stone. And then, uh, you know, then he wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That was supposed to be a piece for Sports Illustrated, but Sports Illustrated rejected it. He doubled down on it and, you know, went forward with it and submitted it to to Jan Wenner at, at Rolling Stone. And Jan was very receptive and, and they ran it in two, two installations in, in November of 1971. And the success of that piece really consolidated his position at Rolling Stone, made him the number one writer at Rolling Stone magazine. And it also made it clear to him that gonzo journalism, mm. so-called gonzo journalism, the term comes from his friend Bill Cardoso at the, at the Boston Globe, that that was his calling card, that that was his meal ticket, you know, that that was his kind of unique, that that was a, his most valuable literary asset. Yeah. But that was two years, almost two years after he had created Gonzo with the with the Kentucky Derby piece. And then on the strength of that, he goes on to report on the presidential 1972 presidential campaign for Rolling Stone. And then that turns into another successful book. It's extraordinary, too. It's so different from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's, um, you know, it's not a it's not a novel. It's not a comic novel. You know, he's he's actually on the campaign trail filing dispatches, which he had never done before. Moreover, he's 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 doing it for Rolling Stone magazine, which is only, you know, five year old San Francisco rock magazine. You know, who cares what they think? So, um, you know, he had to overcome. He, he goes into that kind of press corps at, at the bottom of the at the bottom of the totem pole 
if you will. And so he really had a lot of things to overcome and he managed to do that as well. And then, of course, they added the Stedman illustrations later, just as they added the, the Stedman illustrations to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. For that, his wingman was not Ralph Stedman, but Oscar Acosta. Right. But, but Thompson recognized, as I think Jan Wenner did, that it was important to get those Stedman illustrations because that was an important part of the Gonzo formula. Yeah. Uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, you know, it, it's a tremendously funny book. It deserves all the accolades it's gotten. It's part of... Uh, it's part of the American canon now. You know, it's going to be one of those books that's going to yeah. that's going to live forever. Uh, but uh, and I'm sure I don't know if I would think of a lot of our listeners out there have probably read it or are familiar with it. But uh, yeah, but you mentioned the, the the campaign trail book, which is my favorite Hunter Thompson book, um, and I actually just reread it not too long ago, maybe a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, it's unlike any other campaign book, uh, you know, it's its own thing. And, uh, I'm, I'm a sort of a campaign book junkie, you know, uh, you know, Timothy Krause's book and Ted White's, uh, oh, so, Ted White's book so good, and, yeah. uh, Richard Ben Kramer, you know, what it takes, those sort of things. Um, but, yeah. but, uh, how did, how did fear and loathing on the campaign trail 72, how did that change? political writing or at least campaign writing. Yeah. Well, what was different about it, I think is that, you know, Matt Taibbi pointed this out that, you know, you think of Thompson being kind of cynical about politics, but, but it's actually the opposite of that. You know, he goes to the campaign trail, hoping to find out the truth about it and holding on to some ideals about the political about American politics. You know, he's looking for that one honest man. He thinks he's found him in George McGovern. And so he doesn't, he doesn't bother masking his preference for McGovern. Mm -hmm. Um, Though he, he criticizes McGovern in the McGovern campaign. It's very clear where he's coming from. So he's already shed the first thing that most uh, campaign reporters work hard to protect, which is a reputation for objectivity or at least fairness. Right. Mm-hmm. Thompson says, you know, no, no, I'm going to I'm going to tell the truth as I understand it. I'm going to be very open with my readers about it. And, you know, his, his readers are mostly members of the counterculture sure. subscribers to Rolling Stone magazine. So, you know, they it doesn't surprise the readers of Rolling Stone magazine that Hubert Humphrey and Edwin, Edmund Muskie and, and Richard Nixon are not, you know, lovable people. Um, I think what 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 Thompson does, though, is he he manages to suggest in the course of writing about the presidential campaign that these people are even weirder than the hippies. Right. And that that's, I think, important because lunacy is a really important theme in um, in Thompson's work, you know, increasingly important. And I think what the counterculture believes about the mainstream culture at that time you know, we'd been in Vietnam for a decade. Um, you know, Watergate was on the horizon. The hippies believed that mainstream America, you know, <laughs> and, you know, straight America, let's say in this yeah. case, straight America and what, 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 you know, straight America had produced places like, 
you know, Las Vegas, which the hippies thought was pretty much the weirdest place on the, on the face of the earth. It still kind of is. So (laughs) yeah, yeah. Right. So, you know, there's just this sense and, you know, so I think it delighted them that, that Thompson, for example, said that, um, Edmund Muskie was addicted to an exotic drug, you know, of course, <laughs> I began, right? that was, that was his own <laughs> fantasy, you know, but he includes that in, in his reporting and, you know, uh, it, there's a kind of satirical aspect to the whole thing, but, but basically, you know, Thompson is a kind of moralist, right. As most satirists are, I mean, which is odd because he's so libertine, you know, he's, he's not exactly a super wholesome guy. Yeah. But but there's this sense that he is going to 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 tell the truth about what he sees, and and in fact that he in doing that he's turning a kind of liability into an asset because as he goes into that situation he ha- he really doesn't have any of the resources or advantages that any of his peers have, you know he's at the bottom of the he's on the bottom yeah but that works to his advantage you know I mean really it does totally yeah. yeah. Yeah, it does because he doesn't have any sources that he needs to take care of. You know, he doesn't, he's not coming back to this beat. This is, this is not his job to cover presidential campaign. Like he says, he can burn, he he can burn every bridge behind him. (laughs) He can burn, he can burn everybody, you know, if he needs to. And, you know, so you mentioned Theodore White and really in in many ways, Thompson's campaign coverage is the opposite of what Theodore White was doing in the making of the president which is this franchise that he started beginning with the 1960 campaign. You know, White had written some novels. Thompson wanted to be a novelist, but, but Thompson resisted the, the temptation to turn his campaign coverage into a kind of novel with, with, the, with the winning candidate as the mm. protagonist. That's what Theodore White did. And it was a very yeah. successful formula. And I was you would gonna, kind of expect somebody like Thompson to follow it, but in fact, he goes the other way with it. Everything is unpolished, and you know, it doesn't it doesn't resolve into a kind of unified narrative with with major characters and themes. It's it's immediate, it's spontaneous, it's raw. You know, I mean, he's clearly kind of falling apart mm-hmm. as he's as he's posting these dispatches. Um, you know, there's this kind of edgy, you know teeth grinding frenzy that that he's entering into especially as the campaign comes down the stretch yeah and he really hates nixon you know <laughs> i mean that that's the other thing a lot of people i you know i, I never i never like, picked up on that you know in anything i've ever read <laughs> <laughs> that, that's new information nixon for is me. bill <laughs> yeah nixon um bill mckean said i i really think this is true bill mckean said that nixon was was Thompson's muse. You know, Nixon brought out this kind of crazy register, um, this this satirical edge, this kind of rapier like assault on on uh, Nixon and his character that in in many ways it pushed him to his to his best writing. I mean when Nixon resigns, Thompson is is actually kind of depressed, you know? He, he, I mean, he, he was a kind of worthy adversary, I think, for Thompson. And, um, you know, he went after him so personally. And that, that was another thing that distinguishes Thompson's work from everyone else's is that it's so personal. It's so mm-hmm. visceral. You know, he didn't like all the Democrats either. 
obviously. You know, he wasn't really a part of it in the classic sense of that word. No. I mean, everybody he liked was a Democrat, but he, he hated some Democrats as well. No, and he, he was really bore a grudge against the party. I was gonna say he was personally friendly with um you know, people you would uh Tom Wolf is obviously a conservative figure, but uh just from reading uh his letters when I was younger, uh thinking the second volume was especially um surprising his his uh friendship with guys like uh you know Pat Buchanan. Uh yeah. There's there's right, a, there's right, a yeah. lot of correspondence between the two uh from this you know uh early 70s period and this is when Buchanan uh I'm pretty sure is working for the the Nixon White House. And, That's right. Uh, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So I would love to see the yeah, like no, I said that I mean, the, the, a... the the letters you know later on in his life to see if that if that correspondence keeps up. Um, but, uh, mm-hmm. but, but, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just, it's, I, I think we think of him as being kind of, a um, I think it's a mistake to think of him as a partisan. I mean, he really hated Larry O'Brien, for example, the head of the, <laughs> uh, you know, democratic party. He wrote some hilarious letters to Larry O'Brien, um, really, really incendiary, who later became the head of the National Basketball Association as well. But I think he had been postmaster or something at one time. But um, it's it's really interesting to watch Thompson work because everything is coming from this kind of personal, visceral place. I don't think he was a a particularly sophisticated political thinker, you know, or analyst. I mean, I think he went I think he he had. Um, I mean, he honestly thought McGovern was going to win in '72. Yeah, and, for <laughs> and that yeah. was one of the worst uh, yeah, electoral yeah. landslides in history. You know. Uh, yeah, and it not only was it a huge landslide, but then nine days later, something like within two weeks, he was writing in Rolling Stone magazine, and he basically said about Nixon's reelection, "There's a werewolf in the White House. A werewolf lives in the White House." And he, he indulges this fantasy of, of Nixon as a werewolf, sort of skulking around, escaping from the White House and going to prey on people. You know, this is a guy, this is a sitting president who had just won the biggest reelection landslide in history, practically. And, you know, here is here is this guy writing in Rolling Stone magazine and just basically, you know, casting him as, as a kind of abomination. Yeah. And, you know, so there weren't very many other people out there doing it. You mentioned Tom Wolf and Tom Wolf politically pretty conservative. Don't forget at that time, especially Joan Didion. Yeah, yeah she was, was a quite Goldwater girl, as well. National Review writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing yeah. I actually, I was really surprised, just uh, speak, uh, sorry to cut you off, but uh, the, the whole San Francisco thing. Uh, Jamie Kerchick has this book out about uh, gay Washington. Uh, or like a, It's like this 800 page book on like, uh, Basically, the history of of, uh, of of gays in Washington D.C. throughout like the 20th century. Um, but mm-hmm. but uh, he was talking with I think uh, Nick Gillespie of Reason that um, Harvey Milk <laughs> uh, yeah. actually voted for Barry Goldwater in 1964. Um, no because, yeah, because it was I guess it was uh, um, you know the Democrats were seen as the party of the state and Goldwater is uh, anti-statist. And when you're uh, in a subculture where you're basically, um, 
your your love life is sort of made illegal uh, or your sexual life right. is made illegal, right. then you're not really interested in propping up the apparatus right. that is making you illegal. Yeah. So he actually yeah. Yeah, was a, <laughs> a Goldwater voter in 1964, which is uh, I mean, That's the, why, world, the world is know, just very strange. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Thompson was at that was at the GOP convention mm-hmm. that year in 1964 and made a very deep impression on him. And, you know, I don't think I mean, I think it, he, he, he didn't like what he saw at the GOP convention. He attended a couple more. And, um, you know, in, in, in a way, he, he was never drawn to the Republican Party. But I, I, I'm just trying to stress that that there were elements of the uh, Democratic Party that, sure. that he hated with a kind of white hot intensity and um, and and partly because he hated the war, you know, and he he saw people like Edmund Muskie and Hubert Humphrey as being people who who still even in 1968 were unwilling to criticize Johnson's President Johnson's handling of that war. And, you know, there's just a way that I think that that the, that the public trust in in the federal government was was really breached there, especially among young people. Mm-hmm. Thompson was not that young. I mean, he was never he was always a little bit older than his colleagues at at Rolling Stone magazine. You know, he was a veteran. You know, he was a gun owner, proud gun enthusiast. You know, he he was not a flower child by no. any stretch of the imagination. But I think he also was was stepping into that breach of trust, you know, that people felt about the government, largely because of the war and the way the government had misrepresented the the origins and the prosecution of that war. And I I think in many ways, people from that period are still kind of living with that, you know, trying to trying to trying to trust the government to do to do the right thing in, in the face of evidence that you know, on some pretty important matters, the government has not done that. Yeah. And even the, Neither the his, media. Right. Well, I would say even his, uh, you mentioned he's not, you know, really a flower child, even his relationship with drugs is different, mm-hmm. you know, in the sixties, especially like psychedelics are seen as, <laughs> uh, by a, a lot of people as uh, some sort of like, almost like a religious sacrament and you, and you take yeah. drugs to, uh, you know, expand your consciousness and uh, become a right. better person and all this other <laughs> sorts of stuff. And yeah. Thompson's basically yeah. like, no, fuck that. I do drugs to get ripped. <laughs> like, right. You know, right. I do to have he, fun. He, said he, he, liked to, he liked to just stomp on his own accelerator. Exactly. He said at one point, which I think is a pretty, pretty apt description. And, and one person who, one of his colleagues at Rolling Stone magazine said that that really was a big breakthrough because as you say, I mean, everybody thought, the thing to do is to take these psychoactive drugs and, and, you know, sit on a rug and, you know, turn the lights down and burn some incense and, and, and expand your consciousness. That, that was not his style at all. It also wasn't Jerry Garcia's style to be fair. No, yeah. Or even the, or even (laughs) the, uh, even the pranksters really. I mean, that whole, no. Yeah. 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 That was more of a Timothy Leary approach, a little bit more intellectual, I think maybe, Mm. but, but, you know, one thing about, you know, I was mentioning that, that people were distrustful of the government. But I think the other thing to remember about Thompson was that he was a very astute media critic. Mm. And most of the stuff that he wrote was both, you know, 
about the topic itself, but it was also about the way other outlets were covering that topic or miscovering it. The Hell's Angels is a great example. Campaign Trail is another one. You know, the uh, the death of uh, Los Angeles journalist Ruben Salazar was another one. So, so very early on, Thompson was mo- was creating and then moving into a space where he said, you can't trust the New York Times. You can't trust Newsweek magazine. You can't trust these other sources who are trying to cover stories like the Hells Angels, for example, from a desk in New York City or even San Francisco. You can't do it. You have to go out there as he did, right? His, his reporting was much more participatory early on. And then, of course, toward the end, I mean, he was, he was his own story. You know, he would arrive at a scene and kind of create the story that he was purporting to cover. But the, the media, the astute media criticism, I think, is, is a kind of important part of his work. And, and you know, Timothy Krauss, even more so. I mean, mm-hmm. Krauss's Boys on the Bus is really about the way the media covered the campaign and showed you all the blind spots and the trap doors and why they couldn't tell you what they knew to be true, yeah. right? Because of the, because of the customs of, and routines and really shackles of, of daily journalism. So, so Thompson to his readership, you know, offered a, a different kind of value proposition. It was, I'm going to tell you the truth, the unvarnished truth, as I understand it, you know, and, and that's what Rolling Stone's readers, and then later, a, a much larger readership wanted to hear. And that wasn't cynical, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the act of a cynic who, who, who doesn't really believe in anything. It's, it's not Holden Caulfield telling you that all the adults are phony, you know, <laughs> it is, it is that partly, right? But it's also sort of here's here here's what you need to know about the about the stories that the media are telling you on on a daily basis. Now, yeah. you know, fast forward forty or fifty years, and you know everybody's a media critic now, and nobody trusts anything. And I think that that's a problem too, right? I mean, there's two ways of, of making a mistake there. One is to is to falsely reject or the the null hypothesis and the others to falsely accept it. Yeah. We got a lot of people rejecting stuff that's perfectly demonstrably true. But but at that time, you know, that was a new thing that people were saying, hey, you know, we gotta look at the process of of daily journalism and how they put their stories together, why they do it the way they do it, and what that leaves out. And then Thompson was able and Krauss were able to step in there and say, here's Here's another way of thinking about the campaign that just happened. And that's why I think you get, you get um, Frank Mankiewicz saying that, that Thompson's account of the 1972 campaign was the least factual <laughs> and most accurate account of the campaign. It's also the most memorable, right? It's probably oh, the only one we're reading now, right? Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, but I just think to media criticism, it's funny <clears throat> Um because uh, if, if if you if you become sort of I don't want to say an expert, but if you if there's a topic area or a subject or something you get to know really really well, um, when you read about it in a newspaper, it doesn't matter what it is, the New York Times, mm-hmm. the, the Journal, the mm-hmm. Washington Post, whatever. I mean, really exemplary mm-hmm. newspapers. Um, you'll read <laughs> you'll read a story on this subject or topic, and you'll be like, well. 
that's not quite right. Uh, mm-hmm. That's missing yeah. context. Well, that's not really right either. And then, mm-hmm. you know, and I think Michael Crichton uh, coined it with the, the, the Gelman amnesia effect or something like that. Like, you'll do that with, like, you know, you'll be reading the New York Times, you'll read an article that you know a lot about the subject, and you'll go through and be like, well, this is all completely wrong, or, you know, there's, there's a lot wrong, or this is incorrect, this is incorrect, this needs to be fixed, this is... So it's not really yeah, a very yeah. uh, enlightening article. And then you'll flip the page and read something, um, uh, you know, about something you don't know very well, and you'll just sort of take it as gospel, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it, but, but those stories probably, you know, are the same way. So it's hard, um, you know, with anything really, like keeping the the bullshit detector um, yeah. operating. Uh, you know, it's just hard. I, it's hard for me to take anything on face value. Uh, I read <laughs> in a newspaper. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that doesn't matter what, um, you know, what newspaper, what side of the political spectrum or anything like that it's coming from. Uh, just because I know, um, you know, just from, from knowing a couple things pretty well and how those things right. uh, get reported on that, uh, um, you know, there's the journalists make a lot of, because they just don't know much, you know, um, right. they're, they're not right. writing right. on stuff from a, from a position of, um, I hate to use the word authority or expertise, but, but, uh, or a position of, of in-depth or sustained Deep knowledge. knowledge. Yeah. 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 Um, there's that. And there's also, you know, they're writing on deadline and, yeah. and, and I think too, increasingly, you know, we have, we have journalists who are, who, it's it's a lot easier to submit a story that that basically already um, conforms to certain kind of narrative sure. grooves that are well established in in the culture at large, right? Yeah, I mean you can just and tell by th- by what sources the journalists use in, in a story. Um, it's you know it's obvious like okay, well they're trying to tilt this this way or or to push this in a, you know, an already preconceived notion. Um, right. And know, some of that's by omission, you know, yeah. everything they say is right, but they're not giving you, it's radically incomplete. Right. Right. And I think that was something that Thompson was, was also able to, to point out Absolutely. that, you know, and he would say, you know, that, that, um, that, uh, you know, a, a list of, a list of, of facts is, it, you know, it can be a lot, yeah. you know, even if all the all the facts are true. And so I think that was a way that that's why he went to to the techniques of fiction. I think mm-hmm. he thought that there were certain kinds of truths that that fiction got at better than than traditional journalism did. Yeah. And you know, you did that by get, by becoming more deeply subjective, not trying to be objective but becoming ever more deeply and perceptibly subjective. And I think that was his, that was his gift. Now, you know, if, if I'm a professor of journalism, that's not the message I want to get my students. Right. <laughs> and I think, and, you know, trying to fit him into a, into, you know, school of journalism is, mm-hmm. is a kind of tricky proposition precisely because, you know, what he was, what he was producing was a kind of hybrid. It was a hybrid of, the kind of, you know, new journalism or, or more mainstream t- kinds of journalism 
and the kind of fiction that he always wanted to write and and did right he wrote the yeah. rum diary but but i think his but i think his more durable work is was presented as was journalism and i think in a way you have to you have to hold those terms very lightly i, I think you have to judge him by the by the um not by the standards of traditional journalism or even new journalism but by the standards that are implied by the work itself and the work itself sort of says i'm going to teach you a new way to read you know like a not like a great <clears throat> novel does like any great stylist does right right and and that that's i think you know that said so he's very innovative in that way but there's also something kind of antique about what he's doing there's something that reminds you of people like mark twain or or Ambrose Bierce, the kind of journalism that we associate with the 19th century, mm. where the, there was a game of hide and seek going on in that century when it came to journalism. I mean, you know, Mark Twain produced hoaxes when he was a when he was writing for a newspaper mm-hmm. in Nevada. They'd make it up, you know, yeah. uh, for entertainment and and to get readership and and so on. And you know, people have pointed out that that one of the great huge games in the 19th century was separating fact from fiction and hoaxes from fiction. And that's when P.T. Barnum and, you know, the whole circus tradition was coming on strong and, you know, believe it or not, and, mm-hmm. you know, here's the, you know, the 200 uh, year old lady, and, <laughs> you know, it was baloney and, and yeah. people kind of knew, all right, you know, I'll, I'll check it out and make my own judgment about it. Yeah. And, you know, that, that was a kind of, um, that's kind of part of American journalism that went, went the way of all things. But Thompson, Thompson kind of returned us to that. I mean, weirdly, it was almost exactly a hundred years after, after uh, Twain arrived in San Francisco. He kind of thrived on all that anarchic energy after the gold rush. Very similar, right, to, to the kind of youthful rebellion that, that Thompson stepped into almost precisely 100 years later and then left San Francisco as Twain did and went on to become, you know, a bigger, more important figure. But I think in both careers there, Twain and Thompson, you know, the, the, those brief San Francisco years were really formative. Yeah. Uh, we've already gone mad long, but do you have time to stay for uh, a couple more minutes or just a few things? Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, so, uh, you, you mentioned him leaving San Francisco for uh, for Woody Creek for Aspen, um, but after Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail '72 comes out, that's really his last important work. It's I mean it, basically at the end of that book is where his appetites uh, and his lifestyle. And uh, having to play that persona begins to really start mm-hmm. catching up with him. And like I said, after the book is published, there isn't much he's going to write in the rest of his life that's first rate, you know. Um, mm-hmm. he, we talked about you know him losing Nixon as a foil, as a muse, seemed to take something out of his writing. But um, obviously the the drug and the alcohol intake does too. But uh, mm-hmm. do you believe mm-hmm. the the remoteness of Aspen? Um, the being closed off there, sort of isolated. Do you think that had any effect on his writing in your opinion? I went into this project thinking that it probably did, right? Mm -hmm. That, that as San Francisco sort of disappears, you know, recedes 
into the past that his writing loses something, you know, so that, you know, that, that period from 1965 to 1975, even though he's not in San Francisco for that time, I mean, he's really kind of drawing on that capital that he amassed um, and the, the experiences and the connections and so on. And, but I asked some people that, Terry McDonald, for example, I said, do you, you know, was he kind of a big fish in a small pond? Did that kind of hurt him? And, and Terry said, no, not really. I mean, he always was the most important guy in any room I ever, I was ever in, you know, whether it was in New York city or, or anywhere else. I think it's interesting that he never really wrote a great work that was actually set in the Rocky mountains. Um, you know, obviously he wrote about his own campaign for sheriff, in 1970, that was his first piece for for Rolling Stone magazine. It wasn't Gonzo, you know, but but it kind of put him in the Rolling Stone stable. And then he does the then he does this uh, piece on Ruben Salazar and the Chicano movement in Los Angeles. Pretty straight journalism, you know. But uh, and then in the middle of that piece, he goes to to um, Las Vegas with Oscar Costa. But no, I think I think as you say, I mean the combination of of alcohol and then and then the fact that the the dexedrine that he's been taking steadily during that period to help him get his work done doesn't really work anymore. You know, there's some evidence of that, and he starts getting into cocaine. And you know, cocaine I don't think is a great drug for writers. <laughs> it's not something that helps you focus and and get your work done. I think he had been a master of balancing the the alcohol that he, that he took in daily with, with, with dexedrine. He wasn't alone there. I mean, we know that, for example, that, that um, Joan Didion was taking dexedrine, at least for some of, the, some of the work that she was doing, including one of her most famous works, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, which was about mm. the San Francisco counterculture. She hated it. You know? yeah. she, had, she had no use for these you know, dirty hippies yeah. uh, in San Francisco. She didn't like the beats either. I mean, you know, so. Yeah. Right. so she really she, didn't like the I feminists the real, that much as well. Uh, no. I mean, she no, had a, you know, I, she, I mean. I was going to say, she had a piece, I can't, uh, um, it's the, I think it's in the book after the White Album. Um, or maybe it's in the White Album, I can't remember. But uh, it was written sometime in the mid-70s, and it's just like, uh, you know, and Joan Didion's sort of seen as this, <laughs> Uh, or really celebrated as this, uh, not so much as a feminist icon, but uh, um, female icon. And there's this uh, sure. uh, this piece on the feminists uh, from like the mid '70s, I think, uh, like the Steinem set. Yeah, uh, I think that, that is in the White Album. I, that's talks ex- about them as kind of yeah, wounded birds, right? Yeah, you know just, that they that they weren't kind of you know that they. Yeah, she's very yeah, skeptical. Yeah, yeah like that. when and I first read, when I first too. read that, I was like, oh shit, like uh, Joan Didion. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, that would, no, if that no. came out today, I people mean, would not be happy, you know. Well, she, I think, you know, if you look at at, at what she does with her career, it's really interesting to to compare it to Thompson, mm-hmm. which I, I I try to do in the in the book, because I think the the comparison it really tells us something about Thompson, and that is that you know she continues to to kind of evolve, right? Yeah. She would say, and she did say, I would vote for Barry Goldwater for my whole life. 
I mean, there was nothing really changed about my attraction to his message. Mm. But she did not like Ronald Reagan, right? And she becomes a kind of astute critic, of, a kind of insightful critic of Ronald Reagan, both as governor and as president. And, you know, so she sort of, you know, she, 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 her political migration is a little different than, than Thompson's, right? She starts more at a more conservative place and kind of starts, you know, just in very general terms. I think she, you know, she doesn't fit into any category neatly, but I think she becomes more um, skeptical about the conservative movement as, as she gets older and begins writing these pieces for the New York Review of Books and so on. So, so she has a kind of second act that, that Thompson doesn't really have. He, he continues to kind of dine out on the Gonzo yeah. formula really for the rest of his career with kind of diminishing uh, literary returns. And then she has all that grief work at the end of her career, you know, in uh, many Blue ways, it's the most and, popular uh, stuff. That, yeah. 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 Year of, of, what is it? Year of magical year, thinking. Year of magical thinking. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, if you look at those two careers, you can see that she, she evolves in a way. Thompson never really steps back and tries to take stock of his life um, as, as he gets older. He's, once he finds that gonzo formula, he really sticks with it, despite mounting evidence that, that he, uh, he should probably consider, you know, shedding that. And, mm-hmm. and moving on to something different. I think he'd lost that capacity by then. I mean, he does do some really wonderful um, shorter work, you know, during that time. I mean, the Great Shark Hunt has some oh, yeah. very interesting stuff, but that's 1980. Yeah. And then, you know, you've got this obituary for Nixon that comes out in 1994. I mean, that that that's a favorite for a, a lot of his fans. And then you've got this this. Uh, piece that comes out for ESPN the day after 9-11. And I think a lot of people see that as a, as a kind of him and something that only he could have done. And, and he really did deliver on September 12, 2001 for an online sports outlet. Yeah. Right. That shows you, I think, how kaleidoscopic the media world had become by that time. And also how he had sort of, you know, the development of uh, the arc of his of his career, it, it wasn't upward, you know. Yeah. But I mean, and, he became like a cuddly so, mainstream figure, <laughs> almost like mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, almost. It's weird, like Snoop Dogg. Like I, I think about when I was a kid in the, in like the <laughs> mid '90s, and uh, you know, he was literally, or I can't remember if it was a murder trial or something, but uh, you know, he was seen as like a public menace, and now like right. like Snoop Dogg is like your grandmother's favorite person. He's hanging out with Martha. Stewart. Yeah. No, he you know I mean? it's like, he's, yeah. it's just so, it's so weird. Uh, how stuff like that happens, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think if you stick around long enough, you get, and I mean the reverence, he was kind of still burnishing his legend. I think yeah. the film helped with that. As we said earlier, the two volumes of edited correspondence helped with that modern library reissued for mm-hmm. loathing in Las Vegas. That I gives them a I kind of, yeah, that gives them a kind of they did know, a Hell's Angels too. Standing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, right around the same time, probably. And so, so he's he's still there. He's still he's still a celebrity. You know, of course, he's 
he, he, he's one of those figures that people like Sean Penn and Bono and John Cusack and Keith Richards and so on will go make the, make the pilgrimage mm-hmm. to Woody Creek and have their pictures taken and, and so on and so forth. You know, you might compare him to Charles Bukowski in that sense. You know, he's, he's sort of this transgressive person that, that or, or author or artist, I would say. And, you know, he's, he's able to sort of monetize that in new ways as he gets older, but, but the literary output is definitely falling off. And, and, you know, I think the stuff that he does for the San Francisco examiner, similarly, you know, it doesn't really come in as, as it's fine, you know, mm-hmm. it's not an embarrassment, but it doesn't really come in as, as his best work. And um, so the question is, why doesn't he, why doesn't he challenge himself in new ways? And I think that, you know, having, he, he was, it took him a long time to realize that, that Gonzo, a fair amount of time to realize that Gonzo was his most valuable literary asset. But once he, once he, figures that out, he's not really interested in, in refashioning himself or trying something new. And I think that's something, you know, most people need to do as writers. I would, I would compare him there to somebody like PJ O'Rourke, who also wrote for Rolling Stone, mm-hmm. also a satirist, you know, gifted comic satirist. And a guest who, on the show, actually. Um, you know, it's funny. Yeah. No, he's a fun, he's, you know, I, I read his, his obituary and I thought about him a little bit more carefully. And of course he knew Hunter and they were friends. He didn't take um, Hunter Thompson's politics seriously. He sure. thought of Thompson as kind of a poet, not very, not very insightful politically. You did, you, you know, his politics could be safely ignored, I guess Yeah, yeah. you could say, but, but I thought about, um, P.J. O'Rourke, and I realized that he too kind of found his niche in the media ecology, and it was as somebody who was who would make fun of um, humorless liberals. That was his that was his kind of niche, and he stuck with it even after I think he understood that that um, people like Donald Trump. He he famously said he didn't vote for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, but even as even as he was saying that, he was still taking shots at Hillary Clinton. Sure. You know, I think I think in some ways you find that niche, and it's it's very difficult. I think, especially as you get older, to say I'm going to do something brand new. You know, I'm going to make a break and and start something fresh that doesn't depend on the on the cachet or persona or brand even mm-hmm. that I've built up over the years. That's really hard I yeah. think, to do. And especially when it's a really kind of authentic part of your personality, as I think it, at least it started with was with Thompson. But I think that the main point about Thompson and his persona was that, you know, the Gonzo formula was generative. That is, it generated new material, right, all the time that only he could do because only he could live that way, you know, live the life that he was that he was describing but i think at the same time it was degenerate right in the sense that you know it was taking its toll on him as you say both the both the drug and alcohol use and i mean you know he used a lot of other drugs as well but i think the i think the alcohol and the cocaine were the really destructive ones mm-hmm. and um you know it just it just got harder and harder for him to focus i mean he he said later that that fear and loathing in Las Vegas was the only work was the last work rather that he ever 
wrote a second draft for, you know, that he had yeah. all of the, this incredible editorial support from, from anybody he wrote for after 1975, 1980. I mean, whether it was Playboy magazine or Rolling Stone, I mean, the, <laughs> the amount of support that he got was, as far as I know, unprecedented. I mean, he got a lot of help in putting, in putting his work together after that. And, um, you know, that became uh, that, that sort of model of authorship. I don't think I've ever, I don't think anybody has ever had that thing where you can kind of send things in on a fax, you know, disconnected stuff that your editors then sit there and try to put piece together. <laughs> Just send a page and, that says, uh, fuck you. you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, right? I mean, I've never, I mean, I was an editor for a long time. I, I never did that. I never, you know, I, yeah. I, I'm not sure I could do it. I, so he, I, had, he was able to marshal the talents of all of these really great editors, but, but, you know, his own ability to sit down and, and, and really focus, you know, diminished over time. Yeah. I've always wondered about that. The idea that, uh, creative people, uh, extremely creative people are just a little bit off. So you sort of have to tolerate their eccentricities and stuff, uh, you know, which was clearly done, uh, for Thompson at Rolling Stone and elsewhere. Um, but I always wondered if that's really true. I mean, that's a tradition that goes back to, you know, to the romantics and, you know, Byron and Shelley and all that. Um, but I've always wondered if, if that this, the indulgence of creative types, uh, is really unnecessary and just sort of, uh, bullshit like i think like uh if i i don't know like um if people just sort of stood up (laughs) uh those types and were just like now we're not going to take any of this nonsense just you know yeah shut up and do your work and you know uh, know, like a normal you know person (laughs) would do i don't uh i don't know if that would have any major effect on their work the 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 yeah. indulgence yeah. but i would i would tend to think well, he was he, not but i tend to think like yeah, thompson would have been a better writer if someone was just if uh someone just tugged on the leash a little bit with him yeah and you know yeah yeah i mean i think i i do think you know there was this kind of as i say i think you know there was this diminishment over time that his ability to kind of you know fall back and and on his own resources and finish the work. I'm not sure, you know, especially, you know, into the eighties and nineties, that that was, that that was a live, you know, possibility. But I do know that he had some famous kind of um, encounters with his editors. And, and there was, this is an elaborate dance really, <laughs> described by one of his editors, you know, that there was this, it was almost a ritualized thing where he would threaten to quit. And, yeah, yeah. you know, you would just have to wait for a little while. And, you know, it, you know, just getting a finished piece was, was kind of a success, but you have to realize how popular he was at that time yeah. and how badly these editors wanted to be able to run something by him because he really did have, you know, people really looked forward to reading his stuff and, and he came through often enough, right? If you think of the Pulitzer divorce down in, in yeah. uh, Florida in the early 1980s, the I mean, Foxy Roxy, you know, yeah. that. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, you know, it was so juicy. It was so perfect for him. <laughs> yeah. And you know, he was, you know, his ability to go down there and just really portray or depict that decadence, 
you know, not only portray it, but actually live it himself, you know, so he has a, a kind of special feeling for it that, that, that other writers um, wouldn't be able to, to reproduce. So I, I, you know, I think his, I think his standing was the thing that allowed him to drive this hard bargain. He also had a tremendous sense of other people's weaknesses, including <laughs> editors. You know, if you rolled over or showed any kind of weakness yeah, if you showed your belly. Uh, with him, yeah, oh my God, it was over, you know. And, and Terry McDonald said that as well. You know, you really couldn't do that. And he, he had a little game that he played with his editors about whether or not they were cool enough to edit him. And everybody wanted to be cool enough to be his friend or to edit mm-hmm. his work or, or whatever it was. He, you know, there was, there was a sense that you had to, you know, pass the test um, to be counted as a friend and so on. And so many people were eager to line up for that. Um, even if there was a, you know, even if it was a little, and he was charming when he wanted to be mm-hmm. right. He could, re- he could really turn it on. So he had a lot of different facets. He was a very complicated figure. And, you know, you wanted to work with him. One of his editors later, you know, who was putting out his books for Simon & Schuster, Random House and then Simon & Schuster, said, you know, there was a kind of a fun factor in working with him too, you know. It was kind of a thrill to work with him compared to most authors, right? You can imagine it's, it's, you know, they're complaining about this or that, yeah. But, you know, we're sitting there in little rooms, you know, working for years <laughs> on, you know, what, what are sort of like 100,000 piece jigsaw puzzles. And then we emerge every few years and present this work. And, you know, whereas Thompson, I mean, there was this kind of there was this kind of whiff of danger. There was a kind of thrill to just being in his world. And I, I think, you know, editors were were, you know, they wanted to they wanted to be part of that themselves. So. So that's one of the things I learned from interviewing his editors. And, mm-hmm. and I, I'm really glad that I did because I think many of them now have kind of um, had time to reflect on it. I mean, they worked so hard to help him um, finish his work and so on. And he really benefited from that. And he really was lucky with his publishers as well. I mean, yeah. I, I, think, I think Rolling Stone is, you know, during that period especially was a kind of unique um, operation. You know, they, yeah. they were able to do all this rock stuff, but really they were doing some really important stories, um, you know, about Patty Hearst or Altamont or the Manson family or, or what, uh, Karen Silkwood. I mean, there were a lot of stories during that period where that, that really couldn't have been done the same way by any other outlet, even though they had, you know, their main thing and certainly their business model was all about rock and roll you know and and um they were getting all this advertising from from uh, music labels and so on and so forth i mean that was then it's a Mm -hmm. completely different situation now but they were able to kind of sprinkle in some important political stuff um and thompson was part of that i think when um you know but the bills were all taken care of because of because of the fact that they were cut they were essentially a kind of trade magazine, you know, for for the for the music business. Yeah, I'll always be a a cream magazine partisan, but um, but I I can appreciate that first decade of Rolling Stones' existence. Uh, yeah. They were pretty really unique, but you know, later on they 
um, I think Eon Winner's uh, uh, just desire to celebrity butt kiss and uh, that sure. thing. Sure. And yeah, not, they're, not, they're not piss off the labels who are giving him money uh, to run his magazine right. sort of takes right. over and he becomes more of a a celebrity magazine more than a yeah. music magazine. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, and they've, I they've, think there are elements of there and they've trashed them really when they were in San Francisco. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they've had some horrible opinions on some uh, really great uh, music too. So I'm always, uh, yeah, always, yeah. I always yeah. get a little hairy eyeball at, uh, at Rolling Stone. But uh, like I said, I'm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was not. Um, I mean, one one person put it to me this way, you know, we were better than anybody hipper and we were hipper than anybody better, you know, mm, that they found yeah, this yeah, kind yeah. of, they were kind of threading the needle between, between mainstream acceptability and, you know, kind of counterculture cachet. They were, they were never all the way down with counterculture, yeah. you know, much less, you know, rap music or all, all the things that they, that they, you know, punk even. Yeah, that yeah. they that they missed out on but and they didn't really they didn't really find new talent musical talent they usually kind of ratified it so yeah um, by that Gave it by that blessing. time yeah yeah but what but the editorial formula is, is the thing that i that i marvel at because you know jan comes out of jan and ralph gleason come out of mm-hmm. ramparts magazine and they understand you know that that there's some that there's some running room um, but Ramparts Magazine never had its money thing together. You know, they didn't have the business model that Rolling Stone magazine yeah, had. Well, so most magazines I don't. I mean, kept, you know, most magazines yeah, yeah. never make money, or at least, or at least in right. magazines that are in the the business of advancing uh, ideas, or you know, political magazines. You know, um, New Republic, National Review commentary oh. mother jones none of those magazines uh nope. make money you know and that and that's not really their purpose uh you know their purpose is to to influence uh intellectual life intellectual culture and, and then hopefully you know uh downstream from that uh affect policy right. uh so you're never gonna right. i mean you know <laughs> you're never gonna see uh national review or uh <laughs> or or uh jacobin or something on a on a you know, at the the checkout line at the grocery store, uh, right. you know, it's always going to be people right. or, or like Rolling Stone will, or, you know, the Rolling Stone. I always see these nowadays, like the, the Rolling Stone guide to the Grateful Dead or the Rolling Stone guide to the Rolling Stones or something in like the checkout line. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's like time and all that sort of stuff. And us weekly, which is a, uh, yeah. A Yan winter property. So I think still for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, not anymore. Yeah, he sold out. But oh, okay. I mean, they're, they're, I think you're exactly right about the kind of overall media ecology. I mean, political magazines, left, right, center, whatever, don't make money, never have. Yeah. You know, and, I mean, unless they bundle it with more popular fare, uh, you know, and, and that's what Rolling Stone did, sure. I think. It, it had a political point of view. It won, it won National Magazine Awards for its political content. You know, with Taibbi and and um, some of these other bigger stories on like Altamont and Charles Manson, those were their mm-hmm. first two national magazine awards. Um, but they they and they're still dismissed sometimes when they do political stuff. Like, what is what are these? Who do these people think they are? Right. Um, but 
what was remarkable about it, I don't think Cream or Crawdaddy or, or some of the other rock magazines were really set up to do, to break the kinds of stories that they were no. finally able able to break. And that's that's what made them unique, I think, when, especially when they were in their prime. And and the act was, you know, by adding Thompson, this, this I think is, is a credit to Jan Wenner. You know, he adds Thompson in 1970 to the mix. And I think what he's trying to do there is push the magazine toward the general magazine category and get some of that new journalism, you know, power that he wanted to have in the magazine. Of course, later he runs Tom Wolf and, and others as well. Yeah, PJ. Uh, and PJ O'Rourke, yeah. right. But he, you know, so he's he always has his eye on something a little a little bit bigger. You're right that after after the success, the incredible success of People magazine in the early 1970s or mid 1970s, I think, you know, that's that's catnip. You know, that's mm-hmm. hard to stay away from when you see how how well it's doing. And, and by that time, you know, Thompson is not really at the top of his game anyway. And the person that was most popular after Thompson at Rolling Stone magazine was Ben Fong Torres. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was doing the celebrity stuff, you yeah. know, the profiles and the, and the, the gossip com, they called it uh, random notes, you know, so they, you know, he's running a business yeah, yeah. and he realizes that, you know, he doesn't have, you know, um, he's, he doesn't have a nonprofit set up the way mother Jones magazine does. He doesn't have, yeah you know, rich families to, to sort of underwrite the losses. So, so, you know, he, he manages his business the, the best way he knows how he knows how, but, you know, even before Rolling Stone moves back to New York city in 1977, you know, the addition of Thompson is, is critical. It really distinguishes Rolling Stone from all the other rock magazines. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, you know, Tiger Beat's not going to run, not going to run Hunter Thompson. You know, uh, Variety is not, or you know, Billboard magazine yeah, yeah. is not going to run that stuff. Yeah. So, so it really broadens it in a in an important way. And I think, and you know, one of the guys I interviewed said, who used to work for Rolling Stone, said, you know, Jan, I was always good when when it was time to pick a horse, and you know, Thompson was one of those people. He didn't. He didn't line up nicely when they when they first met. They were like, "Who's this guy?" You know, most of the guys that Jan was hiring, you know, went through the free speech movement with him at, at University of California Berkeley, or had some other had some other connection to the music industry or the counterculture. Um, Thompson didn't really fit that bill very well, but I think he, you know, that was a kind of inflection point for the magazine when he became their number one writer. Yeah, you know, like I said, it's just sort of, sort of a love-hate relationship. I mean, there's so much in that first decade of, um, you know, uh, guys who's writing, um, you know, the Grail Marcuses and uh, Cameron Crowe and Ben Fong Torres and all those people. And you know, there's some Lester Bank stuff still in Rolling Stone early. And mm-hmm. then later on, you get, you know, obviously Hunter and, uh, and Tom Wolfe and P.J. O'Rourke. And but I'm still it's just wary of it's kind of like um that scene in almost famous the cameron crow movie uh yeah uh, mm-hmm. where like the guys are the uh the, the cameron crow stand-in is there to do the story on them for rolling stone the cover story and uh they're and the the two guys in the band are sitting there like well you know <laughs> this kid's the enemy i mean like, this is rolling stone this is the, the magazine 
you know, that, you know, broke up cream, you know, hate Led Zeppelin and, you know, trashed uh, Layla, you know, the, you know, these are the, the bad guys, but then they're like, but it would still be really cool to be on the cover, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Uh, that's sort of, no, like, I'm really, I mean, yeah. I, I think, I think Rolling Stone is a kind of, especially the first 10 years yeah. is a kind of interesting subject uh, all its own. I mean, by the time they moved back to New York City, the relationship with Thompson is, is, is not completely broken, but it's been radically transformed. I mean, he's, he's, he's missed a couple of, he's, he's kind of muffed some important assignments. You know, he comes back from Vietnam without a very good story. Um, he, he comes oh, back the from Rumble the, in the jungle, he, Ali Foreman. Yeah. yeah. The Ali Foreman fight without a story. I mean, it's, there, there's, that, that was a rough moment. That was a rough patch there. And after that, Thompson said, you know, I consider he has to be taken off the masthead and the whole thing. Right. Mm. But they didn't, you know, and they worked it out and he, you know, he did, he, he did continue to contribute to Rolling Stone over the years. I mean, yeah. the Pulitzer story is, is kind of a great, uh, great example, but you know, it just, it just wasn't, the trust was broken in a way and it was getting harder and harder to get anything out of him. And, um, and most of his income was coming from these books, you know, that he, that he was, that he was putting out. Most of them were just collection of articles. Um, but he also, you know, he was also lecturing and the lectures were, you know, it's getting $20,000 a pop and most of them weren't very interesting, you know, by all accounts. Yeah. Um, a, a lot, a lot of them were, were kind of disappointing and even pathetic, you know, so it, it 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 wasn't it wasn't a kind of uplifting story as as you get as you get deeper into the 80s and the 90s. Um, yeah. But I, I and, that's then, and, then I it, and it ends important. in suicide, you know. I mean, so right, yeah, right, um, you know. But I do think there's something uh, over time. If we're thinking about his legacy, um, it's interesting to me that the political stuff holds up pretty well. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't, but you know, maybe because it was so visceral, I mean, or even prophetic, you know, that, that the stuff he's saying in 1972 seems so excessive and so over the top. And yet by 1975, it sort of makes him look pretty good, you know, that mm. he, that he was able not so much to predict Watergate as, you know, to not at all, to, to be the person who suggested that, you know, that that sort of thing was quite possible. And so I think I think in a way, even though it comes off as hyperbolic when he's writing it, later on it seems prophetic. I think you could say the same thing about Hell's Angels. You know, mm. he said about the Hell's Angels, even if the Hell's Angels don't grow, you know, as an organization, their outlook on life is going to become um, more common. Yeah. And I think I, I think a lot of people would agree that that there's this sort of alienated um, sort of, um, I don't know what, what you would want to call it. He called it fascist, you know, outlook, um, you know, violent, not, not part of the great society as, as um, President Johnson imagined it. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, well, Jesus, uh, we <laughs> <someone> <laughs> almost kept you two hours. Uh, so we should probably wrap up because this is a really long podcast. Sure. Um, although do you uh, edit these? Uh, we well, if there's like mistakes and stuff, we do. But like normally, we just let okay. it, let it oh, roll. Yeah. Um, 
Um, so, but okay. I'm pretty sure this is the longest one I've done. Uh, yeah, but my pleasure. Yeah, yeah. You get me started, man. Yeah. Um, so, a uh, couple more questions, uh, but, but both you can probably answer pretty quickly, though. Uh, or, you, but sure. it'll take as much time as you need. Um, just wrapping up mm-hmm. the book. What? Um, and this is something I ask everybody that comes on the podcast. What? Uh, what would you like the audience to get out of out of this book? What? Uh, what's What's the one thing you'd want them to take away from reading it? Yeah. Well, uh, let, let me rattle off a few things that might be a little <laughs> kind of related. Yeah, go for it. One of them is that he was a creature of, of the San Francisco counterculture, not in the classic sense, right? But it's really hard to understand the arc of his work and the reception of his work without, without understanding, you know, where, what was happening in San Francisco in the 1960s. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say is that he did not sit down and say, I'm going to create gonzo journalism today. You know, it was, there was something, something accidental even about it. You know, he was trying a lot of different things. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. And, it, and even after he created gonzo, it took him a little while to figure out that it was his, it was his calling card. You know, once he did figure that out, he never let go of it. And the other thing is, you know, for all of the, for all of the stuff that hasn't aged well, you know, there's a kind of, there's a kind of moral critique in his work. Um, as I say, you know, he had many failings as, as a person, but there's a kind of moral critique that, that comes through his work that is, and, and it comes from a kind of absolute impatience with, liars and hypocrites that I think people continue to be attracted to and probably will for a long time, that that's what's durable about his work. And that that's what makes it relevant today. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, or one more thing. So you are a member of the Grateful Dead Scholars Caucus, uh, as you wrote in the, uh, in the little, uh, acknowledge right proud hard yeah 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 so uh scale of one to ten how big of a deadhead are you and uh what's your, <laughs> what's your, what's your favorite year <laughs> well i gotta tell you i'm i'm not i don't really i don't really identify myself as a deadhead because <laughs> i know real deadheads <laughs> and you know i don't think i've earned that honor mm. um i mean i i wrote about the grateful dead because i thought that they were that they had a kind of fascinating project and in many ways you know, I was they. I was as interested in their development as I was in in Hunter Thompson's. You know, obviously they had a very different kind of career and arc and contribution, but um, I see them as as kind of arising from the same kind of cultural milieu. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna claim Deadhead status, um, <laughs> but I sure like their music, yeah. and I do think their project was was really quite remarkable. And in many ways, I think it's similar to. To Thompson, you know, you think of the Grateful Dead now, and you know they've been reduced to a kind of stereotype or or even a cartoon. And what what we miss there is is how original and interesting and witty and funny and creative um, they were. And I, I would say the same about Thompson. In, in both cases, I think I was trying to say, hey, you know, let's go back and look at this work because um, there's something real. 
uh, and important that that's happening here. Yeah. Um, but I'll go ahead and pick 70. I'll go ahead okay. and pick, you know, the, those years and that, that part of their career before the hiatus. Yeah. Um, though, you know, we all know how great their live shows were after that and that they, you know, they, they, they never were more popular um, than when, you know, in the late eighties and early nineties. But, mm. but for my, for my money, I think that whole back to the land movement and their place in it, um, I'm, I'm still looking for a hip Mayberry. I think I, <laughs> like a lot of adults from that period, you know, I'm still, yeah. I'm still attracted to that fantasy and, and, um, I still sort of, you know, yeah, figure it's, out, try to figure out what's cool or uncool by, by the standards of, of that period. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny how there's so much part of the counterculture, uh, but so much of it transcends, of the just the Grateful Dead as a idea or being uh, transcends the counterculture in a way, and it's something that's really um, weirdly, uniquely uh, American and totally. <laughs> uh, in some sort of American tradition. And uh, I, I was also I actually just sort of thought of this now, um, just as you were talking about it. Uh, there. You know, the sort of pre-hiatus, post-hiatus. It's almost, uh, it's kind of funny. You can, I almost feel like their live history as a band, it's sort of like Thompson's uh, history as a writer in a way where, um, uh, you know, the, the latter years of the Grateful Dead, um, you know, 1990 is a very strong year, 1989, but the band isn't the same as the pre-hiatus band and there is sort of a a slow decline, you know, some peaks in there. But like pre-hiatus, pretty much every show is fantastic. Um, and even like in '77, every you know uh, every show is fantastic. Up, up until maybe about like 1980, there's a, a really a good groove on it. But um, and then once the '80s go on and Garcia really gets into the the heroin thing and his health declines and um the shows are fine you know um and there's some really good ones uh in the 80s and 90s and fantastic ones and i know bob weir thinks that like the band was never better than it was in uh the spring of 1990 or whatever i mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but i i tend to i mean the, the band was just on a whole another transcendent level and just um and it was yeah, just sort of the same yeah. thing they sort of you just, might be thinking um uh, but the, he the, might be thinking of brent midland and, and yeah what he was adding at that time yeah yeah, yeah. and but i just feel like there was sort of a with the dead and the same thing with thompson like towards the end it was just sort of all right we're gonna coast uh you know we're gonna do the first set you know uh warm up a little bit in the second set we're gonna pretty much running out the same stuff in sort of the same order in the same places. Uh, you know, you mm-hmm. know there's going to be the, the post, the post drums in space, Jerry ballad, and you know, the weir is going to, you know, kick it up a notch. And then, you know, these songs mm-hmm. are always going to mm-hmm. go before drums in space. And these songs are always going to go after space. And these songs are always going to be first set songs. And these songs are always going to be second set songs. And these songs are always going to be the encores. And, um, and there was just it, where, in the 70s, especially before the hiatus, it was just, you know, uh, 
yeah, we'll play this song here, we'll play this song here. I don't know. It was more experimental and vibrant and open, and I'm sort of rambling on this here, but... Um, no, I yeah. hear you, though. I agree. I think there was a kind of... Um, they found a kind of successful formula and and were happy. I mean... I mean, they were making know, so much money that. by that point after Touch of Grey and uh, In the Dark, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, they're the highest-grossing touring band pretty much every year uh, from you know, like 95, you know, through the, from like basically 87 through like 95, they're like the top one, two or three touring bands in the United yeah. States. You're making so much money. And it's just like, well, but so maybe it was just, you know, don't fuck with the formula or something like that. But, um, right, it was right. just sort of, I mean, complete, I, I was just, I was just, just rewatching long strange trip and a, one of the a reporter at a press conference asked Jerry Garcia, has success spoiled the grateful dead? And he said, yes, you know, <laughs> So I think <laughs> yeah. I think there there might have been something to that for sure. But I mean their project it's it's a little bit like like Thompson's in this way too, you know. They had a very unique project. They took a lot of chances. Mm-hmm. You know, they invented every aspect of their of their operation, including the instruments and the sound yeah. system. Yeah. So there was, you know, they had a there there was something and and though that that project was founded, I think, on some very stable underlying values. You know, even though they continued to change as a group, you know, the lineup changed, the music changed, um, you know, their their approach to recording changed. They, you know, the underlying values were pretty stable, and and I think with with Thompson too, I think you can find that 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 he's got some principles, right? That and he's judging people according to those principles. I mean, you, you, you can't avoid the urge to moralize when you read mm. Thompson's work, you know, you're going to moralize about him too, right? He invites that the work invites that you can't sort of say, well, you know, let's, let's, let's just look at the work and not think about him or his persona or something like that. It's, t- it's all part of it. Right. So, um, but I think in, in many ways, that Thompson had to create something new that way too. And, and I opened the book with that kind of struggle to, to the struggle that he, that he, that he underwent to create that new thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything was a kind of step into the unknown. And I think the Grateful Dead had that as well. Yeah. And I give them credit for, for sticking with it. It would have been a lot easier to do it the way everybody else was oh, doing sure. Yeah. 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 Um, but just for the record, before we go, I'm a I'm a 1971 guy, specifically the uh, okay. specifically the um, before Keith comes on when it's just like the five of them after Mickey left. Yep. For the, and then it's just mm-hmm. the five. It's just basically the Warlocks again. Um, they right. sounded great. Yeah, I yeah. I, I just, I've listened to the, when I listen to the shows, it's like, man, when was this? Yeah. And a lot of times if I turn it on the radio for, you know, on Wednesday nights around here, um, you can hear them and it's like, wow. No, I mean, I just, I like that period because the the dead sort of just like everyone's like, oh, there's, you know, hippies, just mellow, you know, uh, you know, uh, I was like, no, like check out like the dead from, you know, spring 71, summer 71. I was like, those guys could fucking rock. (laughs) I mean, like that. Those guys uh, could, you know, um, there, there, there's an up temponess to those to that year, um, that uh, that's just appealing to me. And not so much. I know Deadheads like other years better because there's more, 
the jams go deeper and they're you know they're probably playing a little bit better and uh, more song selection and whatnot but i'm a you know i'm a uh rock and roll kid uh, you know punk rock kid too a little bit um so i'm always so the up-tempo stuff always appeals to me but uh, that's, anyway but yeah that's yeah it. But uh, I was, you know, let me just throw one more thing in there, and yeah. that is that that's also the period where they're really experimenting with the country stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I I came to that music later, um, not really country, but alt country, mm-hmm. or Amer- Americana, whatever you want to call it, country music that doesn't sell. And yeah. I was, I was, I thought country music was so weird, right? If you saw what the people in Nashville were doing at that time. And then all of a sudden, when the hippies got their hands on it, it 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 began to look a lot better and sound a lot better to me. And mm-hmm. and now that's a lot of what I listen to has has been influenced by that. So you know, seeing Garcia sit there, you know, with the pedal steel or something is, I think is is also pretty cool. And it was yeah. it was during that time that they were doing that stuff as well. Yeah. All right. Well, like I said, we've gone about uh, we've gone two hours. <laughs> so uh before we go uh is there any uh anything else uh you'd like to plug anything any events coming up or appearances any uh, new projects uh social media anything like that no no well i've got something tomorrow it'll but it'll come out later and hmm. and um i've it's been great i see this as a kind of culmination you know i'm happy with uh the opportunities I've had to talk about Thompson and his work and, and um, especially this one, you know, so thanks for very much for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming. I've really, uh, it's been really, really fun. Like I said, this is the longest I've, (laughs) I usually try to keep it around an hour, hour, 15 minutes. Sometimes I go, well, we had a lot to talk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So thanks for uh, indulging me in Hunter Thompson and uh, San Francisco and Grateful Dead talk and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, it's, it's been a lot of Take fun. Take care. Yeah. And again, uh, for everybody out there, the book is Savage Journey, uh, Hunter S. Thompson and the Weird Road to Gonzo. Uh, the author, author is uh, Dr. Peter Richardson. So make sure everybody goes out and get it. It's a really uh, uh, fantastic read. Um, not, not just on Thompson, but again, if you're interested in um, sort of American stories and uh, California stories, which uh, I am. I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of uh, California. Um uh, then check it out. It's a uh, well worth your time for sure. Uh, but, and uh, yeah, so I guess I'll just leave it to that. And then uh, again, if you like this podcast, uh, please make sure you leave us a five star review and share with your friends. And if you uh, you have books you'd like to discuss with us on the podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's T B E N S O N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, oh yeah, our uh, Twitter account for the um, uh, for the podcast uh you know feel free to reach out to us there send us a dm give us a follow that sort of thing if you have any questions you can reach me there uh you can reach us there at uh, what the hell is our ill books at uh, ill books uh, check us out there and uh that's pretty much it so uh, thanks very much everybody for listening we'll see you guys next time take care hi mom hi robbie love you both <laughs>